as we turn together to the book of Acts, chapter 5. Our text this morning is Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42. It's a lengthy passage. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn there with me as together we read God's Word. Before we do that, though, let's ask His blessing upon His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You indeed are our God, that You are the God of the universe, that, Lord, there is none who can oppose You. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that You would teach us from Your Word, teach us to trust You, teach us to hope in You, all for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Acts, chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. This is the inerrant, sufficient, and authoritative very word of God. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple, teaching the people. Then the captain and the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, 
We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put them outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, Take care what you, do, what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Thus far the reading of God's word. These past few weeks, I have had a passing very passing interest in the World Cup. You see, I'm an American bred through and through, and baseball is my game. But I follow a little bit of this World Cup, this soccer that some people call football. And, and I've noticed and been told that oftentimes there are two main strategies for a team to employ. Some teams go all out with offense. They attack the goal over and over again, sending men over and over again toward the goalie. Other teams, it seems, play as if they're trying not to lose. They play defense. They keep hidden back into a shell, waiting for that one opportunity to score. This is not dissimilar to other sports, in which the strategy could either be offense or defense. And oftentimes, if a team perceives itself as being weaker than the other team, they will play this defensive kind of strategy. Some of you, perhaps, are old enough to know the days before college basketball had a shot clock, in which some teams would practice simply passing the ball around over and over and over again, hoping to delay the game, hoping to win almost through weakness. Now, why do I bring this up? Do I want you to 
run home and see all the news on the World Cup? No. It's because I think oftentimes the church of Jesus Christ thinks it is a weak team. A team that must play on the defensive. A team that must be careful not to make any mistakes because the moment it does, Satan will leap upon it and destroy us. And so therefore, we must hide in a shell. We must protect ourselves and hope against hope that we can withstand all the attacks. What I want you to see this morning is that this type of thinking is not only wrong, it is sinful. Because it denies who God is. That God is powerful. That God is on the offensive. That he plants his church within the sight of the gates of hell on purpose. Because the church, through the Lord, is on the offensive. And God is a God who cannot be stopped. There is no defense against God. We will see several attempts to defend against God this morning. But they will come to no avail. We will see this morning three things. We'll see that God, His ministry cannot be stopped. God's ministry cannot be stopped. Secondly, we will see that His gospel cannot be stopped. And then thirdly, we will see, as an encouragement to you and me, that His church cannot be stopped. His ministry, His gospel, and His church, all of which are unstoppable because God Himself is unstoppable. Let's begin then now by looking at the ministry that the apostles had, that the Lord had laid upon them, and how that cannot be stopped. We begin first by looking at the effect of this ministry on the people. Now, I want you to understand as we go through the book of Acts that Luke is very concerned about church growth. No, he doesn't have the latest fad or gadget or program, but Luke wants to constantly keep in front of us the growth of the church. Because the church is moving forward, it is growing, it is spreading the good news of the gospel, and people are being saved and coming in. And that is the ordinary course of the church. Maybe not in the vast numbers in Acts, but that is the course of the church. That should be the course of Christ's church. Seeing people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit and brought into fellowship. And so if you've noticed... Luke has kind of an alternating pattern. He'll speak about the apostles and their ministry in public and what they're doing. And then he'll speak about the church in private, whether it's in prayer or the difficulties they faced in the incident with Ananias and Sapphira. And he goes back and forth, back and forth, reminding us that the church should be both outward-facing and inward-facing, bringing in the lost and building up God's people. This is the context in which we see the apostles out and about. And so they are out speaking to the people with many signs and wonders being performed, Luke tells us in verse 12. They're being done among the people, in the midst of the people. Now, I want you to remember that all of this happens not without difficulty. There is the persecution that they have been under, and we will see more of it. There has been leaven that needs to be purged out from the church. We saw that last week with Ananias and Sapphira. But there's also another great difficulty 
that the church faces. This church that has 5,000 men. This church that is about to see multitudes of men and women converted. This church that is changing Jerusalem. Do you want to know what they face, beloved? Fear. Not unlike you and me. Do you know that kind of fear that grips you as you're out in public and you're not sure how to give testimony to Jesus or even if you should at this point in time? How you're afraid at times for your children or afraid at times for the church broadly speaking. They felt that kind of fear too. Look with me here at verse 13. As the apostles are out, all of them in Solomon's portico, none of the rest dared join them. Now, commentators wonder who this rest is. Is it the rest of the unbelievers? No, I think it is the rest of the church. It's those who are not the apostles. They've been shaken to the core by this incident with Ananias and Sapphira. And they know the persecution that is out there, and they are afraid. They need to be lifted up by the Lord. So they're not unlike you and me. They're afraid. They're facing this difficulty. But in the midst of this fear, the apostles are out publicly proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ and performing many signs and wonders. And that has great effect. You see, the people who are already in the church are afraid. But the people who are hearing the gospel proclaimed hold the apostles, Luke tells us, in high esteem. Now, this word is used only here in the New Testament. And this is more than just, they think they're great guys. This is a word that shows that they are struck by the apostles, so struck that they have to listen to what they have to say. And they consider them wise counselors. They hold them in the greatest of esteem. The apostles are the kind of people that they will go to for answers. And this, of course, is important as they preach the gospel. They hold them in high esteem, not only because of what they preach, but because of what they do. You see, in verse 12, we see that many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people. This is not some one-off thing. This is not a special occasion. But the work of the gospel goes forward, and as a regular course of things, people are being healed. They are being freed from demon possession. The work of the gospel in freeing people from sin is showing itself in a physical manifestation. The people can see this and it cannot be denied. God wants to put an exclamation point on the preaching of the gospel. It is a regular occurrence and this leads to, quite frankly, a pretty extreme response. Look with me at verse 15. It so happens that they carry out their sick on cots and mats, and they take them out just hoping that Peter's shadow will fall on them. Now, does this remind you of anything? It should remind you of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ and how some enterprising men decided to let down a sick fellow down through the roof just merely so he could be near Jesus. That's the kind of effect that is having here. They hope to just get near Peter. Now, I don't want you to think that there is some kind of magical property to Peter's shadow that is not found in John's or in James or in anyone else's. 
No, the idea we are to get here is there are so many people seeking to get to the apostles, to be near them, to hear them, to talk with them, that they only can get close enough to his shadow. Forget getting face to face with Peter. You hope that the sun is long in the tooth and the shadow cast is long. You see, everyone is seeking to get to Peter and the apostles to hear what they have to say about Jesus. But it's not just respect and healings that we see. We see that this work of the apostles manifests itself in conversions. In verse 14 we see, And more than ever believers were added to the Lord. Now think about that for just a moment. More than ever. Now we have just heard about hundreds, thousands being converted. But more than ever. You may recall I told you that at this time the church is probably 20,000 strong after but four or five months. And Luke says, if you thought that was something, you ain't seen nothing yet. <coughs> Excuse me. You ain't seen nothing yet. More than ever, people are coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are being converted, they are being added to the Lord. Not just to the church, not to Peter's party, not to a moral code. They are being added to the Lord himself. They are a part of the Lord's family. This is what we seek in conversion. We don't seek more churchmen. We seek more Christians. We seek our friends, our neighbors, our family, our loved ones to be added to the Lord. To be added in great numbers, Luke says. Great numbers of both men and women. And we see that this is taking the church beyond the mere environment of Jerusalem. But in verse 16, we see they are gathering even from the towns out and about. So the people are greatly affected by the ministry of the apostles. But the ministry of the apostles also has an effect on its opponents. Look at verse 17. The high priest rose up, and all who were with him, and Luke reminds us that that is the Sadducees, and he says they are filled with jealousy. Now, you know what jealousy is. It's an ugly emotion. It's a destructive emotion. It's an emotion that wells up in us and that causes us to hate others, to hate our own circumstances, to complain, to be miserable. And this is the case for the Sadducees. You see, they care more for themselves than for the good work that is going on. This is par for the course for them. You would think they would be glad merely that people are being healed. Even if they don't understand why and don't believe in Jesus. But no, instead they are jealous because they want to be the ones who are held in high esteem. They want to be the ones who are in charge. But it's not just jealousy that rises up in them. It's also fear. Because you see, their response to a bunch of ragtag fishermen, ex-tax collectors, and others, is to immediately see them as the greatest threat before them. A greater threat than even the Roman army. They say to themselves, well, we can handle the Roman army and its pagan gods and its soldiers and its swords, but these men and Jesus, we've got to stop this now. And so they go out into the square 
And through fear, they seek to imprison and silence the apostles. But it's not only jealousy and not only fear that they experience, but look with me at verse 24. They are also confused. They are perplexed by what is going on. And this is the definition of when unspiritual people see spiritual things. They don't understand why this is the case. Perhaps this happens to you. Perhaps you know someone who has told you of the Lord Jesus Christ and described the change that has happened in their life. And you say, well, I wonder what's with that. I wonder why he's got to make such a big deal out of that. I wonder how important this Jesus is. And you see, the gospel can do that at times. It can confuse us. It can perplex us if we have not placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel actually can harden people. You must believe that. You see, those who reject the gospel are confused and perplexed. And so, if this morning the Spirit is opening up this text to you, opening up the gospel, showing you the Lord Jesus Christ, don't be confused. Don't be perplexed. Don't seek answers in another place. God has you here for a reason. To show you the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. But there's a third group that has an effect. This ministry has an effect not only on the people and not only on its opponents, but also on the apostles themselves. Their ministry has the effect of uniting them. You see, they are focused in mission. And so as verse 12 tells us, regularly they are gathered together among the people. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. And again, this word that Luke loves, all together, has more to do with it than simply space. They are all together in mission, in mind, in spirit, we might say. It's a very vivid word. You see, their mission has united them. Greater than any other thing could possibly do. It's not only united them, it has emboldened them. Because, do you see what they do here? They pick right back up where they left off. They had been told not to preach in Jesus' name. They had been told not to minister in His name. They had been told to stay out of the way. And they pick right back up where they left off. This is a boldness that the Holy Spirit gives. And they do it as soon as they can. They can't wait. They go right back into the temple, emboldened by the work of God in their midst. And the message is the same message that they had been giving. They don't modify their message. They don't change it to make the Sanhedrin less angry. They don't change it to make the people love it more. No, all that they do is pick right back up with the mission that God has given to them. And... It manifests itself in an obedience. An obedience that they carry out regardless of the cost. Because you see, even though they had been imprisoned, even though they had been drawn into dark, dangerous territory, when freed by the Holy Spirit, at the very first opportunity they can get, at daybreak, Luke tells us, they go in and they speak all of the words of this life just as the angel had told them. 
Now, you must hear in this preaching, you must hear in this mission, the echoes and the whispers of Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, where Stephen is martyred. You see, martyrdom is right around the corner. They know this. The persecution is heating up. The opponents are getting angrier and angrier. And yet, in the face of this impending martyrdom, they go out on their mission. Because they know that the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. Well, the Sanhedrin are curious. They're befuddled. They don't know how, when they had locked the apostles up, double tight, how they had gotten out. And it's, it's almost a humorous story. They're standing around saying, where could they possibly be? And the report comes back, well, the jail is very secure. It's double secure. The word there is, is very vivid. We found the prison securely locked. This is the kind of, not just the lock on the door, but the deadbolt and the chain. You know, perhaps some of you, when you are staying in a hotel, it's not enough to shut the door. You have to turn that knob, and then you take that bar and you put it across so no one can get in. That's what had happened to the apostles. And they don't understand. They're not there. And the prison is still locked. Now imagine. They're wondering what this could possibly be. Are there Roman spies around? Have the apostles and the church infiltrated the temple guard? Where could they be? They're long gone now. We'll never find them. And someone comes running in and says, You know those guys you locked up? They're preaching again in the temple. Can you just imagine how that would hit these power-hungry Sanhedrin and guards? who were so sure of themselves, so sure they knew what was right, so sure they were in charge, so sure they were the ones to be obeyed. And God has just made a mockery of them. It's a laughable case. And so they're all befuddled and they are angered. And Peter is brought back before them and they seek to bully him, to cow him down. And they say, we strictly charged you. We made it very clear in bold font and underlined that you not teach in this name, yet here you are filling Jerusalem with this teaching. Oh, and by the way, we don't appreciate that you're making it seem like we killed Jesus. Of course, the irony there is they did. But they just don't want that reputation because they know that the people are holding Jesus in high esteem. And so Peter stands up and his response to this attack is to remind the Sanhedrin and you and me that God's gospel cannot be stopped. Peter gives the same sermon again. By my count, this is the fourth time Peter preaches this sermon. This time it's in very abbreviated form. It's the gospel in about 40 words. Could you do that? If someone asked you to give the gospel in two or three or four sentences, could you? This is a good place to start. It's the same sermon with the same elements. And the first thing that starts is it is Jesus-centered. Notice how Peter begins. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior. 
You see, the focus here from Peter is on Jesus Christ. He begins yet again with the historical facts. The death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus. There's no vague theory. He doesn't begin with some kind of mythical point of contact. He doesn't seek to enter into the unbeliever's life and speak to him about things that he likes. No, he begins with Jesus. He says, Jesus was historical. And what happened to him was true. And I know it, and you know it. He impresses upon the Sanhedrin that Jesus is at the center of what they're doing. And he reminds them that Jesus is a leader. He is a leader and savior. Now this, of course, would hit the Sanhedrin very hard because they thought of themselves as God's leaders. God's appointed chosen leaders. And Peter says, the gospel tells us that Jesus is the forerunner of our faith. That he is the author of our faith. That's the same word here. This word here for leader is not someone who leads from the back. This word here for leader is the one who goes forward. It almost might be someone who is a guide, who goes through the bush, hacking with a machete, clearing away. That's who Jesus is. He is the forerunner. He is out in front of his people. He is your leader, my leader. But he is also Savior. You see, Peter reminds us that the gospel tells us that all that Jesus did was true, but it had a purpose as well. The purpose of his death, his resurrection, and his ascension was to save sinners. Jesus is leader, but he is also savior. Jesus begin, or Peter begins his gospel message with Jesus, but he then begins to apply it to our hearts. You see, it's not only Jesus-centered, it is repentance-focused. You have to give Peter points for guts, don't you? Every time he gets in front of people that could kill him, he makes a point not only of saying, but of leading with, you know, by the way, you murdered him. And the way he does it here is a little bit different than he's done in the past, but it's even more vivid. You see, remember the context. People are being healed, freed from demon possession, coming to the joyful knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, worshiping and praising God. And it's all because of Jesus. And Peter looks at them and he says, you know, you killed Jesus. You hung him on a tree. Now, to every scholar in that room, they knew what Peter was saying. What Peter was saying was, you considered him a curse, not a blessing. Because those who are hanged on a tree are cursed by God's people. You see, he's rubbing it in. He's reminding them that not only are they unsupportive of Jesus, not only do they not believe in Jesus, but they hate him. It's why they can't even say his name. Do you notice that? The Sanhedrin say, why do you keep preaching this man and this name? They can't even bring themselves to say the word Jesus. But you see, Peter wants them to look upon themselves and to be reminded of how wrong they are about every thought they've had of God. Why? 
Is Peter trying to win points? Is Peter trying to make them feel bad? No. Because you see, what Peter is doing here is telling them that this Jesus that they considered a curse, God has exalted. And he did it for a reason. To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You see, Peter links forgiveness with repentance. And he's reminding them and you and me that there is no forgiveness without repentance. We must turn from our evil ways. We must seek the Lord as he has put before us. And you see, Peter wants them to repent. What love Peter had for those who persecuted him. The most cruel thing Peter could have done was be silent and leave them in their sin and misery. But instead, he speaks about the need for repentance, how it is essential and how it is God who gives it. We're all familiar with the passage in Ephesians 2 that says that faith is the gift of God. But you need to also remember that repentance is the gift of God. Paul tells us that in 2 Timothy 2, verse 25. God requires of us repentance. He requires of us to turn from our evil ways, to turn from selfishness, to turn from anger, to turn from all that is opposed to God and to seek Him. Are you practicing repentance daily? Are you turning away from self and turning towards your spouse or your children? Are you turning away from anger and lust and hate and turning toward goodness and love and mercy? You see, that's what the Christian life is all about from beginning to end. Repenting and seeking after God. This is what Peter reminds them of, that Jesus is supreme, that repentance is essential. And as a result, it empowers Peter, the apostles, and you and me to witness to the power of Jesus Christ. Peter says, you know, we are witnesses to all that Jesus has done. And so is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has made us, empowered us as witnesses, so we must tell what Jesus has done. Is that your attitude toward the story of Jesus? Is it impossible to keep you quiet? Does the Holy Spirit remind you that you must testify to the goodness of Jesus Christ, to His magnificence, to the way in which He has redeemed you? You see, this is the unstoppable power of the gospel. The ministry of God cannot be stopped. The gospel of God cannot be stopped. And then that reminds us that the church of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. Because you see, the church of Jesus Christ is a mighty army moving onward and forward. And the church cannot be stopped either by violent opposition or by intentional misrepresentation. We see both of them here. The response to Peter's sermon was not a yawn. It was not, well, there are some good things to think about. No, the response to, speak to Peter's sermon is anger. It is rage. It is fury. It is the kind of rage and fury that is only seen a few times in the Bible. The next time that we will see this kind of rage, the same word is right before they stone Stephen. 
You see, all they want to do is get rid of Peter and anyone who speaks about this Jesus. The opposition is violent. It is a rage. It is irrational. They are out of their minds wanting to kill the disciples. And this, of course, stems from an intolerance of the truth. And it's not dissimilar to our world today. Our world is very tolerant, isn't it? You like dogs? That's okay. You like cats? Well, that's okay too. Do you believe in Buddha? Well, that's nice. Do you believe that the world was created when aliens came and dumped their trash onto a planet? Well, that's okay. You can believe that. Do you believe we're all reincarnated from bugs? Well, good for you. But as soon as you say the name Jesus, tolerance goes out the window. As soon as you claim that salvation is found in the work of Jesus Christ as God stooped down and sent his son at his own mighty cost to redeem people that hated him, you're no longer welcome. People don't want to hear that. No different now than it was in Peter's day. This violent opposition rages and raises its head. But there's another kind of opposition that we see here. It's much more subtle. It comes from a man by the name of Gamaliel. We read it and perhaps you know the story. Gamaliel calms them down. He doesn't want to have a bloodbath right here in the meeting. Maybe he's afraid of getting his cloak bloody. Maybe he's afraid of the Romans coming in and being all upset about violence a riot, and he says, you know, we really just ought to calm down for a minute. Now think about this. And he talks about two other instances in which people opposed the state, opposed the Sanhedrin. And he says, you know, those things came to nothing. You know, maybe this will come to nothing too. Maybe it's of God, and if so, we don't want to be found opposing God, but let's just see if it goes out of its own accord. Now, some hear Gamaliel's speech and think he's some kind of proto-Christian. That, you know, this is a good philosophy that the church should take on. You know, just let things work their own course and see what happens. But you see, Gamaliel here is not about preserving the apostles. He's not about seeing the gospel go forward. What he is about is remaining in control. Because, you see, what he doesn't do is say... You know, these people might have something. We're the religious leaders of the day. We should probably investigate what they're saying. We should go talk to the people who've been healed, see the lives that have been changed. You know, because if we're wrong, we're in big trouble. No, he doesn't say that. All he wants to do is to get the apostles out of sight and out of mind. And if you think about it, he's comparing them to ancient terrorists. That's who he's comparing the apostles to. Gamaliel is not helping here. Perhaps you know people like this as well. They're the kinds of people who don't argue with you when you speak about the gospel, but they walk up next to you and pat you on the shoulder and say, they're there. You know, I guess I could understand why you would need that crutch. It's demeaning. It's an attempt to twist the truth to make it petty, to make Christianity just like a political movement or just like any other social movement. How do the apostles survive in the face of this? 
How will we survive in the face of violent opposition and intentional misrepresentation? We see the answer in the last few verses. The apostles survived because of their joyful determination. You see, Gamaliel is concerned that they get stoned. Oh, but it's okay to whip them. You see, he's fine with them being beaten. They even have a number. You, you whip somebody 39 times because the limit in the Bible was 40. And so you whip them 39 times to make sure that you go as far as you can without going over the edge. And so the apostles are whipped and beaten. Their backs are bloody. You must see this image in your mind. They go out from the council. And do you know where they go? You can follow them. You just follow the trail of red. They are beaten in body, but they are not beaten in spirit. They go out rejoicing, saying, how blessed are we that we could be beaten and suffer for Jesus' sake. Not for our sake, not because we're right, but for Jesus'. You see, this joy wells up in them. It thunders out of them. They rejoice. And why do they rejoice? Is it because they've won? No. It's because they have been linked to Jesus. Everyone around them, even their opponents, knows that they are with Jesus. They are also joyful because they know that they have Jesus. No matter what is taken away from them, Jesus cannot be taken away from them. And finally, they are joyful because they see that the name of Jesus has great power. And so they go out in verse 42 and they pick up right where they left off. Every day, every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus. That is the power the unstoppable power of the living God in the lives of his people. Never forget that the Lord is moving forward. No matter what we see around us, do not be distracted. Focus on the goal. The mission of God goes forward. I close with this. It's a, it's a wonderful new hymn that I hope that we will learn in weeks to come. Heard it at General Assembly. And it goes like this. Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom. Be the truth with triumph crowned. Let the lands that sit in darkness hear the glorious gospel sound. From our borders, from our borders, to the world's remotest bound. By your arm, eternal Father, scatter the shades of night. Let the great Emmanuel's kingdom Open like the morning light. Let all barriers, let all barriers yield before your heavenly might. Come in all your spirit's power. Come your reign on earth restore. In your strength ride forth and conquer. Still advancing more and more. Till all people, till all people shall your holy name adore. Let's pray.